Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm George. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the last half of the Book of Jeremiah and the Book of Lamentations. And we're so excited to welcome George Pierce, our friend and colleague, for this particular episode because these are not easy chapters to, to make sense of and to digest, quite frankly. This is, a, this is a really difficult section, and gratefully, George has spent many years studying this part of the history of, of the Kingdom of Judah and the ancient Near East, so we're looking forward to hearing, hearing your insights. Maybe before we jump into Jeremiah 30, maybe, George, you could help us um, lay some groundwork in chapters 26 through 29 to set the stage for what's going to be in the scriptures today. Absolutely. So, in Jeremiah 26, we start to see the, the troubles of Jeremiah mount with the government, if you will. And it's in the reign then of uh, Jehoiakim, uh, who is the son of King Josiah. And it's at the beginning of this then that Jeremiah is going to go stand in the temple, um, as it says in Jeremiah 26, verse 2, Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command thee to speak unto them. Diminish not a word. And then he's going to start in basically berating Judah and Jerusalem for the, the sort of missteps that they've done in terms of the covenant. But don't you find it interesting, George, that the very first word out of his mouth is a condition. It's not an imminent, destructive kind of a prophecy. It's, if so be they will hearken and turn every man from his evil ways, that I may repent me of the evil which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. So, so the Lord's setting up this condition of, if you'll repent and turn to me, and by the way, Joseph Smith made some adjustments in verse 3 because it makes it sound like God is up in heaven needing to Need to repent, repent of something, and, right? And Joseph Smith makes some, some adjustments in that verse. Um, I love the fact that it starts with that, you have a choice. And he, he gives them this, this choice all, all the way through. In fact, all the through the chapters that, that we're going to discuss today has this sort of emphasis on, on repentance and, and, and wanting to renew those covenants and, and that sort of thing. And so Jeremiah gives this, this sermon. He talks about how like, if they don't um, hearken to the words of the prophets, um, as it says in verse 5, to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent unto you, both rising up early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened. Then will I make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So just some background to this. Historically, they're going to hear the word Shiloh, and they're going to know what it's talking about. Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was set up, um, and Shiloh eventually gets destroyed uh, as, a, as a city, and of course they're going to move those elements to Jerusalem and and build a temple, but they know the fact that Shiloh gets destroyed because of, of their disobedience early on, and so to have that threat there is going to be a, a sort of um, sword hanging over their head, um, if you will, uh, with all that. Which is a really important point because many people in Jerusalem are claiming this idea, and, and you even see it with Laman and Lemuel later on, this idea that 
Jerusalem can't be destroyed. Jeremiah, stop prophesying this, this evil destruction against us because we have the temple, we have the Holy of Holies, we have the presence of God here. We're good. We're offering our sacrifices. We're good. We can't be destroyed. So to, to hearken them back to Shiloh that got destroyed with the tabernacle there, the presence of God, it's – he's saying it's happened before, it's going to happen again. Absolutely, and there's this, there's this sense in, in academically we call it a Zion theology of what's going on here. They've had the experience. So back in the days of King Hezekiah, when the Assyrians are threatening, they repent, they follow the commandments, and the Lord spares Jerusalem. So they have some data, if you will, to back up their ideas. But by this time, they've gotten to the point. You mentioned Laman and Lemuel as well. They've gotten to this point where just Jerusalem's never going to be destroyed because the temple's there. And if the presence of the Lord is there, he's always going to, to do that. And Jeremiah and his contemporary at this time, Ezekiel, who's already over in captivity, they're both going to, sh to show us that that's not the case. The Lord will execute judgment even if the temple is there. Which, by the way, just as a, as a, a moment to pause here and step back from the story, if you do your own word search in the Bible for this phrase, so look for saith the Lord or word of the Lord, the, those kinds of phrases, you are going to find that in the Bible this shows up in Jeremiah more than any other book. The second most is his contemporary, Ezekiel, those two, so it's by far the most in Jeremiah and then uh, three-fifths of the amount in Ezekiel as you find in Jeremiah. It's everywhere. If you were to mark your scripture pages in Jeremiah, every time it says, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came unto me and commanded, saying, thus saith the Lord, your whole page is going to be polka-dotted with your markings because it's everywhere. This is, a, this is something that we call the prophetic formula. Prophetic formula. Thus saith the Lord. You can take it as a fact that when Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, any of the prophets say, thus saith the Lord, this is directly from the Lord. It isn't Jeremiah saying, you know, I have a pretty good idea of the political situation and our economics aren't so good, so here's what I'm thinking is going to happen. This is directly from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And it's everywhere. I'm just saying, it's you can't go very many verses before he re reminds you that this is not him speaking, it's the Lord speaking to these people. And interestingly enough, in the tie with this, we have these people who are very much opposed to Jeremiah's message, how dare you preach against Jerusalem, or how dare you preach against the kingdom of Judah, or, or anything else like that, because we're, you know, Lord's going to protect us. And he gets thrown into prison for it in chapter 26. Interestingly, starting in verse 17, note this, um, then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the Merastite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah the king of Judah and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there's your phrase, Zion shall be plowed like a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. So Jeremiah gets into trouble for prophesying and then people say, Hey, didn't Micah the prophet also say the same thing? And so we have this interesting use of, of Scripture being used in Scripture to verify and justify the prophet's sayings. It's beautiful. So then chapter 26 ends, at least on a, on a semi-good note, he, he's kind of acquitted. 
and, and gratefully he's not imprisoned at, at this point, but that'll come. So you go to chapter 27, and now he's involving more than just the kingdom of Judah with regards to Babylon. Absolutely. He starts to speak about um, the Babylonians coming, and the Babylonians are going to come, and they are actually going to, as Jeremiah prophesies, they're going to come and they're going to take away the vessels of the temple, and they are going to put the um, people of Jerusalem and of Judah into bondage and, and to, to have this um, yoke, if you will, placed upon them. And so he's going to, to talk about these prophecies, and, and again, we have this, this phrase in verse 19, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, concerning the pillars, that's the pillars of the temple, and concerning the sea, concerning the bases, and all the rest of these things which Nebuchadnezzar took, um, right? they are not going to remain in the house of the Lord, they're going to be carried into Babylon. And so Jeremiah is already um, prophesying the uh, destruction of the temple, the looting of the temple by the Babylonians, and how they're going to carry those things off. So again, another um, signal to those in Jerusalem and to Judah that they are not safe just because the temple is there. Which then leads us into chapter 28, which is a, an amazing chapter to show these contrasts. You'll notice in Scripture often you get a positive example right next to a negative example because it shows you the, the contrast more clearly when they're side by side, and in this case, our negative example in chapter 28 is a false prophet named Hananiah who comes forward and with boldness, look at how he responds, verse 2, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. He used the exact same phrase as Jeremiah has been using all over the place. He's saying the same thing. The Lord has spoken that he's going to break the yoke, and verse 3, within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord house, Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. So he's saying, hey, I'm going to break the yoke from Babylon. Within two years, all of these things that are carried away, they're going to be brought back. And at that point, all of the leadership in Jerusalem, all of the elite, the ruling class, they're like, oh, good, good. So it's just a little, God will beat us with a few stripes, and in the end we're going to be saved. It's all going to come back very quickly here. Thank you, Hananiah, we, we love you, right? Verse 5, then the prophet Jeremiah said unto the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord, even the prophet Jeremiah said, amen, the Lord do so. The Lord perform thy words which thou hast prophesied to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house and all that is carried away captive from Babylon into this place. And you're thinking, wait, he, he just seemed to verify what Hananiah had prophesied. But look at verse 7. Nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in thine ears and in the ears of all the people. <laughs> so he's basically playing with them a little bit. He's like, oh good, that would be great. Go ahead. Have Boy, this, I wish that could come true. <laughs> I, I wish that Hananiah's prophecy were accurate. Nevertheless, let me give you the real story. And, and Jeremiah says, he continues on in verse 8, the prophets that have been before me and before thee of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence, the prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known, and that the Lord hath truly sent him. Jeremiah says, listen, 
I'm not the only one. There's been all these other prophets we've seen back in chapter 26 that people are quoting Micah already, um, about 120 years after Micah's time, that there's all these prophecies. And you know what? Let's just see how this plays out. And we'll see who the real prophet is here. Which sets the stage. It's all. It's this. It's this. Uh, almost a feeling of a competition being set up. So Hananiah looks at Jeremiah, and again, as as George mentioned, Jeremiah is using these sign acts, these object lessons, if you will, to teach principles. So he's got this wooden yoke on his on his neck and on his shoulders and. What does Hananiah yeah, do? So Hananiah takes, in, in verse 10, Hananiah takes the yoke from Jeremiah, the wooden yoke off of his neck that he's been commanded to wear, and he breaks it, and he says, this is how, right, the Lord's going to break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah in verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet, after that Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, go and tell Hananiah, saying, thus saith the Lord. Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make them for yokes of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him, and I have given him the beasts of the field also. What Jeremiah says through the word of the Lord, right? the Lord is saying it, I've basically set all these nations to be subservient to Nebuchadnezzar. That's the will of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord, including, as it says, the beasts of the field. Everything under Nebuchadnezzar's command has been placed there by the Lord, and it's going to come to pass. And we still get this back and forth, right, if you will, in verse 15 about, right, Hananiah and Jeremiah still kind of contesting uh, with each other. Uh, and it comes out in the end that Hananiah is a false prophet. In fact, um, he passes away in the same year in the seventh month. Yeah, within a few months. Look at the wording there in the bottom of verse 15, Jeremiah speaking to him, saying, The Lord hath not sent thee, Hananiah, but thou makest this people to trust in a lie. You're speaking as if you have authority, and yet you have none. You are not a seer. You are not a true prophet. You're not seeing the future, so you're just telling the people what they want to hear for whatever whatever reasons you may have for doing that, for popularity, for prestige, power, money, whatever it is that you're getting from it, but they're believing a lie. You're leading them astray. Isn't it interesting if you were to bring Jeremiah and Hananiah into the modern day, I think we could see that the same competition, if you will, that's, a, that's probably not the right word, this, this same contrast exists in our world today where there are all kinds of people willing to tell you all kinds of things about how to live your life and about what's going to happen in the future, but not all prophecies come from God. And so it's this idea of one of our tasks as disciples of Christ on the covenant path is to be able to clearly distinguish between prophets of God and those who claim to know but aren't going to guide you. Anyone can say anything they want about the future, but it doesn't guarantee that those things are going to happen in the future. It seems that prophets are the only ones who are given those capacities for the world to look down from the, the high tower position that they have as watchmen on those towers to be able to tell us what God is planning to do, and then it's our choice whether we believe them and trust them and follow what they're saying or if we surround ourselves with Hananiah's today. A quote that uh, I love from Elder Neal A. Maxwell many, many years ago. 
he said, quote, now we are entering times wherein there will be for all of us as church members, in my judgment, some special challenges which will require of us that we follow the brethren. All the easy things that the church has had to do have been done. From now on, it's high adventure, and followership is going to be tested in some interesting ways. I think we could all say amen to his prophetic statement from clear back in the 1970s that followership is being tested in some very interesting ways of do I really trust the prophets or not, as it plays out here on the scripture page. And by the way, Jeremiah's prophecy to Hananiah the false prophet, you're not going to live, well, in that, the seventh month, it came true. <laughs> that comes true too. And what's interesting is that Jeremiah gives us as believers and, and gives his contemporaries, but, but us now, the tools to be able to do that. As we look at this, both in chapter 26, that mention of Micah in verse 18, but also in Jeremiah chapter 28, um, as he talks about the, and, and I read these verses before in verses 8 and 9, he gives us the tools to be able to assess that. So if we're ever questioning, is this the right thing to do? Is this the word of the Lord for me? Because our leaders don't stand up in the pulpit at conference and say, thus saith the Lord, go do your ministering, right? So that's not, that's not their sort of style. But Jeremiah gives us the tools because what we have is comparison then. He says, go take a look at other prophets. Chapter 26 gives it to us in, in actual detail. They said, hey, uh, didn't Micah say the same sort of thing? And Jeremiah encourages us, go look at the words of former prophets. Go look at what they've told you to do and see how that matches up with Jeremiah's saying. See how that matches up with what our um, apostles and prophets are saying. And then when you see this tradition, you know that then you can trust that this is the word of the Lord. So as we jump into chapter 29, we're, we're finished with the Hananiah episode. Now Jeremiah, instead of saying, yeah, you know, it might be two years from now, I can't say, no, he's very specific, I can say, and he'll tell you exactly how long they're going to be in this Babylonian exile. So he, he picks it up in verse 8, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which he caused to be dreamed. You're, you're inventing this narrative for what's going to happen, and it's not coming from God. So verse 9, for they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. So verse 10 says, for thus saith the Lord. Remember, I told you, you just look, and this phrase is just everywhere. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished in, at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. George, we, th we read this in English. See how quickly I read that? We're like, oh, 70 years are going to be accomplished, and then I'm going to visit you and perform my good word, and I'm going to have show this compassion. 70 years, great. Do you, do you know how long 70 years is? Do you know how painful 70 years of, of exile and captivity is? But I love the fact that before we've even started into this full-fledged captivity, <clears throat> we we begin with an end in mind, where God is starting this captivity with a promise for redemption. Absolutely. And let me just give you some context because the chapter 29 has been used, especially verse 11, so following what Tyler has read, 
um, about the 70 years. Verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And to give you an expected end. So he's already got this end in mind, but he's saying, listen, this is what's going on. Now let me just give you some context just a little bit historically. We're going to keep saith the Lord up there because we're going to keep referring back to that. But <clears throat> just to go over some kings of uh, Judah here. So King Jehoiakim, who is the son of King Josiah, he's going to rule from 609 to 598 B.C. His son, Jehoiakim, I know it's kind of confusing with some of these names, only reigns for less than a year because the Babylonians will come in and replace him with his uncle who takes the name Zedekiah. Now, here's something where we may be familiar right, with this. Zedekiah starts to reign in 597, and he will reign until 586 BC. Now, in the midst of this, and I'll use a different color, in the midst of this, we have the Babylonians kind of interfering with politics and, and doing things. And so we have then in 605, sometimes 604, depending on right, how we date things, BC, we have the first wave of exiles. Essentially what happens is the Babylonians come, they come to Jerusalem, they want to make sure that Jehoiakim is loyal to them, and they take away just a group, people who are um, sons of those in the royal administration. So we can think of, I'll put this in parentheses, Daniel and his friends are typically counted in this first group. And they are taken and they've gone to Babylon. In 598, we're going to have the second wave of exiles. And this is going to include Jehoiakim himself. But also the prophet Ezekiel and about 3,000 other people. And they're taken into captivity. The main one right, that we often think of with the destruction of Jerusalem is here, and this is a third wave of exiles with the destruction of Jerusalem. It's what we call the exile of the skilled. Those who are in administration, those who have some sort of useful skill for the Babylonians, they're the ones who go into exile at the destruction of Jerusalem. Interestingly, it's here in the second wave that we have another group of people that we may be familiar with who also decide to leave Jerusalem as refugees and travel out on their own. And we'll see them um, in their own book of scripture uh, and their trials and, and tribulations. So we have these sort of um, three waves. And then there's also a fourth wave in 581 just to sort of really clean things out um, and really only leave the land with the poorest of the poor. And so we have these various waves of exile, these various incidents of the scattering of, of Israel, as we want to call it. But when chapter 29 in Jeremiah happens, it's probably somewhere around here or here that we're looking at. So Jeremiah is writing a letter to those who are already in exile, those who have already been ripped out of their homeland, separated from their families, taken and put into another land where they don't understand the language and they're going to have to learn something new, where they don't understand the geography, the topography, the resources, how they're going to survive. And the Lord is saying, you know what? It's not the end. It's 70 years. It's like one generation because that's the, the 
purpose of using 70 there. It's one generation. But think about what that means. For us, that would be back in 1952. Someone was taken away from our family, moved somewhere else, and now they're expected to move back in uh, in terms of that. But the Lord says, I know the thoughts that I have for you. I know that they're good. You have to trust me. You're already in exile, but there are good things coming. I love, <clears throat> I love this whole concept to be able to see it so clearly laid out in history to then pull it forward through the passage of time to today into your own home, into your own life and circumstance. Reread verse 11, for whatever Babylon might be for you today, for whatever that exile might look like for you, and it takes on all kinds of forms in our world today, look at verse 11 in a, in a modern-day context, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. There's no trial that you're facing, there's no wrestle that you are, are struggling with that is guaranteed to permeate through, throughout all of eternity. You're in a period of testing, a period of trial, and God has an appointed end, an expected end for all of those struggles if we'll just trust him and move forward in faith. I just – I love – I love it when we can see such relevant and urgently applicable principles on the pages of ancient scripture. And, and we're not expected to just sit there and endure, right? right. Eventually it'll get done. The Lord tells him in, back in verse 5, Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. The Lord doesn't want us to just sit and endure the, the right way, okay, well, and eventually. He wants us to flourish where we're planted and to have peace and to continue on and to do this work, and he says, you're going to be fine. And we know from actual documents in Babylon that these families who retain their names and retain their identity as, as members of, of the House of Israel had marriage contracts, they, they right, intermarried, they had families, they started to grow, they got property, there's all sorts of things that archaeologically we can look at them and say, yeah, these are Jews living in exile. And they're doing exactly what the Lord commands them to do. They're flourishing where they're planted. I love that. In verse 12, he continues that idea, then shall you call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity and I will gather you from all nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place where I have caused you. Uh, to be carried away captive. What a beautiful concept to then lift where you stand, as President Dieter F. Uchtdorf has taught in the past, to, to put your roots deep with whatever circumstances you have around you, do the best you can to love God and love others. Beautiful concept. It's a great concept and this great um, concept of introducing or at least continuing on with these promises that every time we see the Lord through his prophets, talk about judgment, talk about sending people into exile, discuss the scattering of Israel, there's always the promise, always, always, always the promise of gathering them back from all these nations that they've been scattered into, the promise of gathering Israel together, of which we are a part of in, in my, our modern context. Absolutely. So as we finish chapter 29, the stage is now set 
for chapters 30 through 33. Don't you just love the scriptures? There's so much that we can learn about God and his work in the scriptures, and it's so helpful to see the historical background and the theological background of what's going on in the time period of Jeremiah and these other prophets. I'm going to share again things we've talked about in other lessons because it bears repeating, because it, I'm going to talk about the covenantal logic that is packed into the scriptures. The reason we keep talking about this is because it's in the background of so much of what goes on in scriptures, and it's helpful to forefront what is going on in these prophecies, these revelations, and in the minds of, of the prophets. So, we've talked about two different covenant types in the ancient world that we find in the Bible. The covenant of Grant, which is very much what we see in the Abrahamic covenant, particularly if you look at, say, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and then you have this fancy term called a suzerain vassal treaty. And I'll explain this again just briefly. And these two covenant types are very common in the ancient world, uh, particularly in, in the Bible. This one we find at Mount Sinai with Moses and his people. And briefly, the covenant of Grant, these covenants are given by a king to faithful servants for faithful service that they have given over a long period of time, and the king will then offer to that faithful servant an eternal or a long-term promise that's unbreakable of land and posterity and property. Let me give some examples from the ancient world. I'll read some examples of these covenants, and then we'll look at how this plays out in scriptures, and then we'll talk a little bit about the suzerain vassal treaty, and that's, an un, that's a conditional covenant. In fact, I'll just write those down briefly. This one is an unconditional covenant. It's unbreakable. And this one is conditioned based on people's righteousness. So this covenant is all about what we should be doing to show loyalty to God, and this one is all about God being eternally loyal to us. And we'll see that playing out here in Jeremiah. So listen to some versions of this covenant we find in other cultures that surrounded the Bible lands. For example, here's one. Uh, a king giving promises to faithful servants and to reward them for excellent service. After you, your son and grandson will possess it, meaning this land that I'm giving you and this promise that the king is giving. Nobody will take it away from them. If one of your descendants sins, the king will prosecute him at this court. Then when he is found guilty, if he deserves death, he will die. But nobody will take away from the descendants either his house or his land in order to give it to a descendant of somebody else. So the king is promising to this very faithful servant, there's nothing that anyone in your family can do to wreck my promise to you. Sure, they might have to get punished if they do the wrong things, but my promise to you endures that I'm going to give you this land and protect you in the land. So you can see that covenantal logic playing out throughout the scriptures where God has promised land to his faithful people. Here's another one. Nobody in the future shall take away this house, her children, her grandchildren, or her offspring. When any one of the descendants 
provokes the anger of the kings, whether he is to be forgiven or whether he is to be killed, one will treat him according to the wish of his master, but his house they will not take away, and they will not give it to somebody else. So again, this is the covenant of grant. It's unconditional. A king gives it to a very faithful servant and promises for all time that his descendants will have access to certain land. And even if the descendants mess up, those individuals will be punished, but the promise for the land will endure. Now, let's bring this back into the Bible. If you think about King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 to 16, God uses this covenant type with David, and this is what he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So as we continue on to read in Jeremiah, where we hear about God's everlasting and enduring mercy and loving kindness, his hesed, it's because he made an eternal promise, first to Abraham in Genesis 15, renewed in Genesis 17, and elsewhere, and then again to King David, of these eternal promises that he would establish his kingdom and maintain it. We see that Jeremiah calls upon this covenantal logic and this memory on a regular basis, reminding people of God's unbreakable and enduring mercy to give to the descendants of Abraham, all that he has promised. Now, on this side, you have what we call, the technical term is a suzerain vassal treaty. It's a conditional covenant, first established with Moses and his people, where God laid out covenantal stipulations. The Ten Commandments are the instruction book for how to show loyalty to God so that you can have full access to these eternal promises. And if people break these stipulations, God will allow them to be punished and not have access to his eternal promises for some time until they're willing to, again, be conditioned by his expectations. So as we read these ongoing chapters in Jeremiah, you want to look for where do we see the mercy of God and his outstretched arms? You can see that within this unconditional covenant. And where do we see, say, punishment? We can see it within the conditional covenant we're first given at Sinai, that the people have deserved what they're experiencing because they have chosen to walk away from the embrace of God. And if there's anything you get out of the Old Testament study this year, and it's this, and Jeremiah states it very powerfully, God wants to be our God. He wants us to be his people. He wants to be in relationship with us. And he has made an everlasting and enduring covenant that can never be broken, that he will always be our God. And he's invited us to show that we will be in that relationship by living the commandments he's asked us. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we have to be punished. But he will continue to be God, and we're always invited back in. So you think today, every week we get to go partake of the sacrament. It's our opportunity to say to God, I trust you, I want you to be my God, and I believe that your covenants you've made to your servants are available for me, and we get full access to his everlasting mercy, and that's secured through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now watch as we open up chapter 30, watch what Taylor just shared, watch as it just 
fits together here. Look at verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. Are you noticing the significance of a prophetic call? God is the one who calls the prophets and then commissions those prophets to do things that God wants them to do, and it usually involves recording their their word, the words that God gives them, and in many cases, in a book. Why? So that it can live beyond just the people who are listening to the speech or to the words of the prophet in that one instance at that one point in time, so that they can see these, these covenantal connections over time. Now look at verse 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. Notice the two kingdoms, the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah, he's going to bring both kingdoms back, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. It's going to happen, even though some are not going to get to take advantage of all those blessings on the land and the blessings of the covenant, it's going to happen. Thus saith the Lord. And we have the the Lord saying the same sort of thing later on in verses 8 and 9. It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, again, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. So we have a promise of bringing them out of bondage, taking away that, that yoke that's on them, both Israel and Judah coming back together and serving not only the Lord their God, but David their king. So this promise of this Davidic king who will rule over a complete house of Israel. With, without any of the division in the family. So look at the significance of, of him bringing in this, this Davidic promise of a king because keep in mind, that, that was the glory years of the united kingdom of Israel under King David. Look at verse 10, therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Why? for I am with thee." So this idea that we sometimes superimpose onto the Old Testament of an angry, vengeful, spiteful God, <clears throat> I think all we're seeing, again, is a whole group of people who are angry, spiteful, vengeful, not keeping the covenants of God, and so him letting these conditions fall upon them, but you see his everlasting kindness over and over and over again, collectively in history as well as individually in modernity with each one of us. Look at the rest of verse 11. I think this would be considered really good parenting. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished." Well, there's that statement in Scripture, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Right. And so he's just trying to, to correct, at this point, correct Israel and Judah, pretty harsh measures as we'd say, getting carried into captivity, but correct them just as he tries to correct us, whatever our, our as you mentioned before, whatever our Babylon or whatever our Assyria is, trying to correct us out of love for us, 
Yeah. As a parent, I don't correct my children because I, I don't like them. I'm trying to correct them because I love them and I want them to be the best versions of themselves as they grow up and maybe have these lessons stick with them. We'll see. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Look at verse 14, the contrast. All thy lovers have forgotten thee. All those people that you forsook my covenant to go and, and seek other gods and other lovers out there, they have all forgotten thee, and they seek thee not, for I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy. They're not – you're struggling, and they're not coming to find you, but I'm coming to find you, and I will redeem you, and I will bring you home. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get to the book of Hosea. Look down at verse uh, 17, for I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord. I, I love that, that promise that's going to come up repeatedly here in these, in these uh, next verses and chapters. And then the, the promise is, is always given, even though in, at the end of verse 17, the, the sort of name of Zion is, is kind of held as like, oh, they're outcast and, and, and held in reproach. In verse 18, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be builded upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof, and out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of them that make merry, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. We have this, this situation where even though it's, it's a lot of, of sort of judgment and chastisement and being sent into exile, those tears of mourning are going to be turned into shouts for joy and, and this rejoicing, and, and there's going to be this multiplication in Israel and, and children and grandchildren and, and all the rest of these things. And at the close of this, in verse 22, he says, "'Ye shall be my people, and I will be your God.'" There's something that, again, if you want to carry something away from your studies in the Old Testament, I would encourage you as I encourage my family and my students to think about where else do we see these phrases? And you'll start to kind of connect the dots and, and to weave the fabric together and to see these phrases used. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Hold this in your head as you study things like Hosea and Amos and even in Zechariah this phrase is used as well. You shall be my people, I will be your God. Even though it seems like there's a rejection of Israel and Judah because of their sin and their disloyalty to the covenant, there's always this unconditional love that when the gathering of Israel happens and everything is back together, there'll be this acknowledgement. And so we want to sort of connect those dots and have that in your mind as we think about it. It's always throughout the Old Testament this encouragement for Israel and Judah and then also ourselves in our modern context to recognize him as the Lord. And so we have this phrase here. Um, in Ezekiel, you'll read the phrase over and over, right? Then you will know that I am Jehovah, right? That I am the Lord. And that's a, a repeat back to the Exodus. So before every single plague is, is issued forth on the Egyptians, the Lord says, now you'll know that I am Jehovah, and this is what I'm going to do. And then in Ezekiel, as he sees his future time as Israel's being gathered back together, he uses that same phrase, then you'll know that I am the Lord. The people right, will know right, whose people they are and that he will be their God as he brings them all back together. And, and he picks that up 
right away in chapter 31, verse 1, at the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. So you get it repeated there. Jump down to verse 3, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee. Perhaps my favorite part about this teaching is the sense of urgency and the sense of, of capacity that it gives me, this idea of I don't need to, as we talked earlier, I don't need to sit around and just suffer in silence waiting for God to come and save me. Right now, I don't need to wait until I say, say my prayers before I go to bed tonight. I can start right now in my heart turning heavenward and saying, dear God on high, I want to be thy son. I want to more fully be thy people, and I want thee to be my God. Help me. Help me know what I could do today, right now, to more fully give my life to thee, consecrate my effort, my mind and my heart, put them on the altar, so to speak, and say, here I am, take me, use me, teach me, shape me. I want to be thy son. I want to be thy people. We don't need to wait 70 years to fulfill these prophecies at an individual level. We can start right now. We don't even need to wait till Sunday to take sacrament. We start that process now and cap it off when we renew our covenants. And every week we just keep trying a little harder to be a little better, as every President day. Hinckley kept saying. Every day, every hour. So uh, it's just that's that's the lesson that's here. As he says, I've loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness, this idea of uh, – and Taylor mentioned it – this idea of hesed, this loving kindness, this covenantal love. This is what's causing him to draw them back together. It's this love that's never going to go away for the house of Israel. And so this is what he's going to, to do to accomplish this. And we can see the situation that's here, um, right, to, to come back, to build. He's talking about in, in verses 5 and following how they're going to plant vines, and so that's, that's kind of a symbol of, of permanency because it takes a while to get the vines going, but they're going to plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. And then, as it says, the watchman will cry in verse 6, like, let's go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Right? They're going to say, let's go to Zion. Literally, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to the temple. Let's go to the house of the Lord. So they're going to bring, make this pilgrimage down and do this. And he says, I'm going to bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth. And with them, the blind, the lame, the woman with child, and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. What's really interesting to me in these verses is that there's this promise of bringing back the northern kingdom out of exile. Now, they've been in exile since 732, 721, right? So two different instances there. So even for Jeremiah, it's been 120 years or more, right, as, as we look at this. And so he says, I'm going to bring them back, but just not, not just the, like the healthy and the great people. He's talking about the marginalized and the disadvantaged, those that are blind, those that are lame, those that have kids that have need help, right, because they have toddlers, those who are pregnant and probably going into labor, right, all sorts of people. He says, I'm going to bring them all, right, not just, right, the good ones, not the ones that are doing everything right and right, going to church and doing all this. I'm bringing everybody from the margins in, and I'm going to pull them together because, right, of that chesed, of that covenantal love that he has for them. Look at, look at the last line of verse 12 as he, as he is finalizing this concept of, of the ultimate gathering, and they shall not sorrow 
anymore at all. It, it hearkens to, to the idea of, of God wiping away all tears from their eyes. Sorrow will be done away. Those, those uh, tests of mortality will have filled their purpose and no more need for sorrow. It's a beautiful promise. This concludes part one of this week's episodes. Please watch part two to continue with the discussion. The link will be in the description below as well as included on the end screen. Thanks for watching and know that you're loved.